Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Brown Show. Today, we are joined by an incredible founder. His name is Sachin Garg. This is the Built in California series. Sachin, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Thank you. So, uh, Sachin, apart from being a globetrotter, uh, you're currently in Bangalore, but uh, usually based down in Cali. Um, so, you are the founder and CEO of Sara. Dot io doing some awesome stuff so we're going to get into the uh, meat and the potatoes around that but for our viewers and uh, audience around the world who potentially haven't heard of sara and, and yourself uh, why don't you give us the elevator pitch uh, about you um, and the origins to sara sure <clears throat> so by education by education i'm an engineer right so very technical and i studied in india from one of the iits right after that I landed in New York <clears throat> and joined a company called Symbol. And I was part of a team which was building what for Sarifi system. Um, so, so done some really cool stuff, technically good, filed, filed a few patents. And uh, a few years back, I was bitten by entrepreneurship bug. And uh, I built my first company that was into mobility solutions, which were acquired later by another company. Then I built my next company, which was about retail analytics using AI and computer vision. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, you know, that did not go as we planned. Uh, with COVID, all the brick and mortar kind of went down. And with that, unfortunately, we also went down. But that got us a lot of interesting learning. <clears throat> and while working on that, you know, we were looking at you know, COVID happening and then e-commerce taking off. And, you know, and while, you know, as a shopper, I was trying to return a product, you know, bought online. I went through some very interesting experiences that led to this you know, problem of returns as you know as for as for businesses. And that's when we really started to work on it. That can we really solve this problem? Because this is really a bad problem for businesses, for environment, and even for the consumer, right? Nobody likes returns. And that's how basically Sara got originated in the current form. And we have a product called Eco Returns, which is used by hundreds of merchants around the world now. Fantastic. Uh, so you're in the reducing of returns business or space currently, right? So, um, so let's talk about like how big is this problem? So obviously we, we all know like Amazon's like a trillion dollar, you know, market cap company. We, everybody seems to buy, you know, in the US, everything from Amazon most of the time. I've got packages arriving here like every single day, toys for my kids, <laughs> like, you know, various bits yeah. and bobs. But uh, I'd love for you to paint a picture uh, for us, Sachin, around like how big is this actual problem in dollars? Like how big is this return space actually? Right. That's a, that's a great question. So, you know, one of the things which I learned from my previous ventures was to not to jump onto an idea just by that, just by looking at it, right? Do some research. And one of the important points is how big is the problem? Because if it is not big enough, you'd rather not do it, right? Because somebody else will take care of it. Um, so when we digged into this deeper, we figured out last year, for example, if you look at it, almost $500 billion worth of goods were returned. That's the number we're talking about. And this number is expected to become about $750 billion in the next couple of years. So that e-commerce is growing and this number is going to grow and grow. Now, this market is pretty big, but there is a fundamental uh, you know, shift and differentiation in certain ways. Right? So we talked about... We talk about Amazons, Walmarts of the world. Yes, they are there. But there are a lot of other, you know, brands, D2C players, you know, dropshippers 
who are also you know deliver you know doing a very good amount of business. For example, if you look at Shopify, Shopify net GMV is not as big as Amazon, but you know last year it was about one hundred fifty billion dollars roughly. So those kind of amounts of goods are being sold or directly by the by the merchants to the customers, and that's where I think we operate on you know that specific part of the problem where direct to consumer brands or retailers are struggling with returns, and that's where we come in. So Sachin, what is the impact of this return space on things like landfills or the environment or uh, you know, the economic impact even of on retailers or e-commerce uh, retailers specifically? What does that look like? Right. So one of the single largest reasons why e-commerce retailers are not becoming profitable, many of them are because of returns. That's the biggest reason why they do not get profitable easily, right? Uh, so the problem is really, really, the impact is massive. And if you look at from an environmental perspective, almost one-third of every good which is returned actually ends up in landfills, right? So we are talking about over $100 billion worth of goods are actually landing up in, in landfills, you know, on a on an annual basis. That's a massive number. And 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 I'm not even counting the, the reverse logistics, you know, CO2 emission because of that. I'm not even counting, you know, that's that's a very different domain altogether. Just the landfill part itself is over a hundred billion dollar you know, worth of goods. So it's pretty bad, you know, from business perspective and as well as from an environmental perspective. So why aren't what are e-commerce companies then focusing on instead of focusing on things like returns management or reducing the returns? I know like they do there's returns management like as part of a process like if you're like you have to have that. <laughs> but uh but what uh, it seems to me like they're not actually focusing on the reduction of returns. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's the thing it's almost like the optimization yeah. play that goes along with, you know, oh, damn, you know, someone's returned a product to me. Right. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, so one of the things which Amazon has done very well is that they have created such great customer expectations, experience expectations that every brand is now forced to really provide similar kind of experience to their customers. And I think that's where the returns, and when you talk experience, the returns naturally become a part of that. So a lot of there are a few companies already, quite a few companies actually, who offer returns management. They're pretty good at it, but their primary objective is to really be able to have great customer experience when they are placing a return request. Some of them go one step ahead and try to convert those returns into exchanges, which basically protects you know the merchant from a revenue standpoint because you're not losing money. You are shipping something else instead of what was shipped originally, which is fair. But there is, there is a lot more things which can be done essentially to really solve this, you know, the amount of return, right? We have seen in some cases, certain categories, certain territories, we have seen 55% return rate. So out of every two goods sold, one actually comes back, you know, in many, many cases, right? Some people operate at 30%, 20%. There are different variations, but the number can be very high and can be moderate. And regardless of that, it is a, it's a huge impact. So... In the market, most of the people are focusing on experience, which is required, on managing returns and, you know, trying to convert some of them to exchanges. But fundamentally, why do returns happen? Can I do something to protect the environment and the merchant and the consumer, all of them, from returns? 
that is something it's the bigger problem that needs to be solved and that's exactly where we come in mm-hmm. so uh sachin um Talk to us about your product. So how do you guys actually go about reducing return? So let's just say I'm, you know, I'm doing a thousand transactions a month as an example. Um, you know, let's just say 10% or 20% of that is, you know, being returned every month. Maybe that's a high number. <laughs> but uh, but uh, why don't you explain to our viewers and uh, listeners around the world, like how does your product actually now solve this problem of reducing returns? That's a great question and a difficult one as well. Right. So to solve this problem of returns, let's first try to understand why returns happen at all. Right. And there are many, many reasons. Right. If you look at different kind of industry segment, for example, apparel, footwear, accessories, these are the places where the returns are much higher as compared to, let's say, grocery, for example. And the returns happen, you know, for various reasons. Um, one is that um, many a times when customer is buying something online, they are not able to, of course, you know, the, the, the get a full com- complete feel of the product altogether, right? So you don't really know you end up buying it. And what you can see a product in real life versus when you see it on a website, that could be a little more artistic with some photo effect, which can also kill the look of, kill means enhance the look of the product many a times, but that might be a little away from the reality, right? Then many a times the customers are a little too sensitive. Some customers are very sensitive. Even if it is a minor little issue on the product they have received, they want to return it, right? I mean, instead of trying to see, you know, returning will not lead to any benefit to anyone, they simply try to return it. Then there are many other reasons such as, you know, the fitting issues, for example, lack of awareness. Most of the people are not aware when they're returning, actually, what is the impact on the environment or the merchant, right? They don't know. I was not aware of it. You know, so my, my personal return rate you know, what I return has gone down by at least 60-70% since the time I have dug deeper into this problem. So to really, to solve these problems, I think we, we have taken a holistic view. What we have done is that in our solution, we have built small micro tools. Uh, those tools include things like incentivization, for example. Sometimes when a customer is trying to return, our AI kicks in and, and understands that whether the customer really wants to return or he's kind of on a borderline case, right? If it is a borderline case, they try to offer some kind of an incentive so that they don't return the product and keep it, right? And in that case, everybody is happy. Merchant is happy because the customer has got an incentive, which he can use to buy something again. Customer is happy because he got an incentive. And environment is happy because the return did not happen. The, the customer will be able to use the product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then we have additional tools such as, you know, the advisory tools. When customer is really trying to make a buying decision, can we give them advice about right size, right fitment, how people of their category, what kind of size they typically buy, right? To help really people buy the right thing so that they don't have to return it later. Mm -hmm. And then we also have some additional very interesting tools where we kind of financially protect the merchant as well as the consumer from returns if it happens at all. And that also helps reduce, right? So at this moment, using some of the tools which we have, we are typically able to reduce returns by 30, 35%. I'm not even counting exchanges. Exchanges are exchanges. That's separate. And our objective is to really be able to get to a number like 70% over the next few months. We will get to a place where we'll be able to reduce returns by up to 70% in most cases. So Sachin, could we please paint a real world example here? So let's just say I'm an e-commerce retailer, and, but I'm on the Shopify 
platform. Um, and uh, I know you've got your, I brought your website up for everybody. Um, and I'll do it again here. You've got this thing here called Eco Returns. And this is one of the tools that you guys obviously uh, you know offer to your customers. So what I'm curious to understand is, how do I actually work with these tools? Does, do you know what I'm trying to say? So like, do I integrate with my Shopify, Shopify platform or, uh, you know, my Amazon, you know, uh, 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 e-commerce store? Like how does the integration and the actual, you know, engagement work with, uh, uh, you know, between you and your team and then e-commerce retailers? Right. So, uh, Eco returns is more like a plugin. If you have a Shopify store or let's say a Magento store, right? You can, by clicking a few buttons here and there, you can actually connect eco returns to your store, right? So it is very simple. You don't, nobody has to be technical to really be able to set up eco returns onto their website, you know, the e-commerce portal. And uh, we don't really support Amazon's like platform at this moment. And the primary reason being that, um, we cannot control the consumer side experience onto Amazon because that is owned by Amazon. In fact, even the brands don't own their customers because they are all owned by Amazon. Finally, right? That's one of the reasons why people are moving to their direct selling onto their own websites using Shopify, Magento kind of platforms. So it's pretty simple, you know, and then we as a company also offer free assisted onboarding. If somebody has a difficulty, we can get on a call with them. In some cases, we have seen our customers going live with us in less than six minutes, uh, that quick. But in some cases, it takes a little bit longer, depending on the complexity of the store and the kind of integration needs. Uh, but typically speaking, most of our customers are able to go up and running in less than 30 minutes. Um, <clears throat> only in the cases where somebody needs very specific integration, let's say somebody is using a, a CRM system, which we are not by default integrated, in that case, we have to work with the customer and provide that integration. That may take up to a couple of weeks for them to get live, but that's about it. So it's pretty pretty simple, I would say. Well, that's good Good news. So it's a short time to value. So that's really good news. Um, one of the things you mentioned COVID upfront um, and its impact on your one of your previous companies, one of the things that COVID did do was drive adoption of e-commerce. Uh, you know, as a, as a thing that you do as a consumer. And so we're, you know, prior to COVID, it was kind of like, I mean, there was a UK stat that I, I came across where like there was this massive ho- hockey curve, you know, it was just like massive adoption. E-com- if you were in e-commerce during COVID, like you won, <laughs> you absolutely won. You totally, you know, it was just a, like people had to shop online. You couldn't go to store. Um, what yeah. are some of the current trends that you see engaging with e-commerce retailers uh, in the US and obviously in Europe? Um, in the context of reducing uh, returns and so forth. But what are the kind of other trends is, in, from a category perspective? What do you see uh, playing out over the next six to 12 months in the space? Yeah, six to 12 months are very, very interesting question, actually, right? It is not just because of e-commerce, but overall because of the global economical conditions, right? Right now, because of Ukraine war is going on. Inflation is very high. So I think we have to still understand a little bit more about the impact on the overall consumer behavior. Um, however, one thing which I can be, you know, very sure about is that a lot of these brands during COVID times were focused on their top line, trying to increase more and more revenue because the time was right, market was right. But now I think a lot of these will start thinking of profitability as well, right? Because you cannot keep growing the same way you were growing earlier during the COVID times. 
And, and, and because of inflation, the cost of the goods are going high and a lot of people would be, you know, cautious of spending their money, right? So, and even the, the money flow to these merchants will be slightly, you know, reduced, I would say. Keeping all of these in mind, I think it's very important for most of the online sellers to really start focusing on profitability if they are already not doing it, rather than trying to chase, you know, very rapid growth. Rapid growth is always good, but sometimes you have to become more sustainable as well. And I think next six to 12 months are more about being more sustainable financially, of course, environmentally, but financially as well, right? And and the short, short way of really becoming financially sustainable is to be able to control your returns. If you can control that, I can say that most of the businesses can become profitable very quickly. And that's where, you know, we can possibly help as well. So, uh, Sachin, when you say quickly, like how, how quick is quick? I mean, if I, if you and I work together, let's just say I want to launch a store selling, uh, maybe it's a bad example. I wanted to say NFTs, <laughs> but, but let's just say shoes or retail clothing, fashion apparel, stuff like that. It's kind of like your shirt. You've got a great shirt on, <laughs> but, uh, how quick do you feel like the, you know, how quick is, is it really feasibly to become profitable? Is it like a month one? you know, six months, when is that profitability window realistically uh, realized? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I think it depends a lot on that specific store and what kind of gross margin they are operating at. It depends on a lot of those parameters, right? But if you are not, you're deep in red, if you're not deep in red and it's primarily because of the returns, right? You can actually become profitable as early as 30 to 45 days of starting. So it's that kind of quick impact. But most of the business, when I look at the data, when I see our customers, most of the customers have be, you know be able to turn around things in within 90 days and become profitable you know provided your focus is on profitability right if your focus is on profitability you can get profitable but if your focus is only growth then of course your money will go into marketing customer acquisition and that will continue to drive your cost which can be high so here's the thing. So I know for a fact that advertising costs are skyrocketing across platforms. So if you're trying to advertise on like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., uh, even on Google, the average small business, this is a real stat, current one, spends uh, $9,500 a month on advertising. The average small business. That's a frightening amount of money <laughs> for a guy who's launching an e-commerce store. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, and and yeah. even and even then, when you when you have customers and you're starting to scale, your cost of acquisition is getting more expensive. So that eats into your margins. And we all know that in retail, e-commerce, or and or in store, margins aren't exactly sitting at like you know. 45% where you have a bit of yeah. headroom to kind of get squeezed through your uh, custom acquisition uh, channels and strategy. So uh, if these costs are going up, uh, Sachin, um, what is your advice to uh, you know entrepreneurs, founders who have an e-commerce interest um, and maybe are selling other things and they're going, hey, like my cost of acquisition is going up for my SaaS company, for instance. What's your advice in terms of either reducing that cost of acquisition or maybe a tactic that can help their e-commerce uh, you know, store grow? That's a great question, right? Um, though I do believe, I'll mix up a couple of things here, right? So next six to 12 months, I do expect the, the the Google ads and Facebook ad price to be going slightly down because of the uh, because of the impending recession and this, but it's still the cost will continue to be very very high. It'll still be very high. So the only advice I can give is that you know and and we follow the same is to really acquire repeat customers, right? Make your customers happy so that they buy again and again from you rather than keep chasing new customers all the time. That's very very difficult. Um, and that is possible when you give them right value, right, great experience, great customer support, right? And, and I think that's something which can really, really help a lot, uh, most of these businesses. Also, I think the rule of 80-20 applies here, you know, as most of the places. You got to know which 80% or which 20% of the customers are important for you. They give you most of the revenue, 20% will give you most of the revenue. So you might want to go out of your way to make sure that those guys are happy they keep coming back to you again and again, rather than trying to spend a lot of energy on the people who are probably 80% and giving only 20% of the revenue, right? So for example, in our system also, we we look at behavioral data of the, you know, the, 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 the store, consumer, product, you know, all of that combined together. And we get to see that some people are serial returners, for example, some people are not. They are very, very cautious when they buy things, they don't return it, right? So. As a business, whom would you want to go after? You would want to go after the products which are not returned easily, the customers who do not return just like that, right? And that can definitely increase your profitability and reduce your, you know, your focus on a keep acquiring new customers because you need new customers all the time when you have a lot of churn happening. If your churn is low or not no, then you don't have to spend that kind of money on acquiring new customers all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting where you sit because you're kind of sitting in this interesting, almost like operations space. You know what I mean? Like it's so you're looking holistically at like the whole business, but and then obviously creating value on the on the reduction of returns. But actually, you, you're kind of more of a solutions or strategic partner also to e-commerce companies. For instance, like what you know, listen, if you want to reduce returns, here's how you do that. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah. looking at other and uh, uh, like a number of data points that actually would help not only uh, reduce the returns, uh, but there may be other kind of non-obvious things that may play a role here. So, for instance, um, maybe the question to maybe articulate kind of like what I'm trying to get across is 
what is the role of brand in reducing returns? Because if you know what I mean, like if you buy something super cheap and nasty, <laughs> you're more likely to return that thing than if it was a more premium brand that you were like, well, it's the brand I'm sticking to, even though the product, you know, may not be exactly what I want or may not exactly meet my specifications or expectations. So what is the role of, of a brand in reducing returns, for instance? That's a very interesting question, Matt. You know, so you know, I, I think the brand has a huge impact, right? The brand is actually in customers' mind, finally, right? So, if a brand is good, a customer would usually not return a product saying it is not good or I don't like it because in their mind, you know, it's a great brand, great product. Uh, they might still return because of the size and fitment and those kind of issues, or by any chance, if product is effective, which is unlikely for a good brand, you know, uh, those cases that can still happen. But the question, the reason of that, you know, I don't like it, you know, it, you know, has as much less impact if you have a good brand. So brand building is important, uh, but it's a very long game. It takes time. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and if you're, if, if, if a brand is early in their journey, this may or may not be the the best place for them to really be able to reduce returns. Mm -hmm. And talk to us about your data, the, how you use data in the reduction of returns. Because it seems to me like if you're in the e-commerce space, my sense would be is that literally everything is measurable because it's digital. It's not like you, you know, you don't know. It's like if you had a store, for instance, you don't know how much dwell time there was on average for the last 500 customers that walked into your retail store. Not yet. Maybe someone should solve that problem. But, uh, but if you know a lot about the space that you're in, like who your customers are, you know, what is their dwell time? What is their, what's your churn rate? What is your CAC, your cost of acquisition, all this stuff? You're sitting on a lot of data. So um, the question I have for you is how do you work with data to reduce returns? What does that uh, insight look like for e-commerce companies? Yeah. So, you know, I think we are the only company which uses a lot of AI and data science to be able to focus on reduced returns. If we were to simply offer returns management, honestly speaking, we don't need much of focus on data, but we have a proper, you know, a data science team, which does look at data. Mostly it is, is anonymized form because, you know, we are GDPR compliant as well. Um, so we use this data primarily to understand where the things are going wrong, right? It could be related to the product. It could be related to the product description. It could be related to the logistics. It could be related to the packaging. It could be related to the customer or a certain location or certain time. So we track about 150 parameters, you know, uh, um, you know, you know, from everything from payments, the payment web method to location, time, everything, you know, we track them and try to make sense out of this that what could be causing return, let's say in this case. So in fact, we have we have an engine ourselves. Uh, I think what's only you know platform which has an engine by which which can accurately predict whether a specific order will be returned or not, and if it will be returned, then why it would be returned? It could be because of the logistical issues, the customer issues, the product listing issues, the product itself, the packaging, many many things. And 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 as you rightly said, right, everything is digital, so it's relatively easy but it's, it's still not 100% data which you get all the time. And the reason being, for example, um, if you look at reviews, you know, thrown by the customers, right? People leave their reviews 
the website, Amazon is very common, right? Now that is again an AI domain. By review, how can you read a review and understand why the product was, you know, uh, you know, maybe sometimes, many times, you know, there are, there are hidden reasons why person returned the product. They leave a review and they return the product. Okay, this product I don't like, it looks very different and I'm returning it, right? So no, th- those places are not straightforward. You have to really use data science to, be, to understand the review and try to extract the reason why it is being returned. Also, many times when people return a product, right? Uh, they are sometimes in hurry, right? They just simply select the reason why I'm returning it and this is returning. Now, that becomes another very interesting, challenging area that how do you really get the right insight from the customer? Right? So so these kind of challenges are there, uh, but we we get as much data as possible. And then from that, we're able to derive what parameter is impacting most and what can be done to really resolve it, right? So these are the kind of things which we really do with data. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about AI uh, and what you've done in that space? Uh, I know you've touched on it, like, you know, looking, having AI read a sentiment, well, a review and pulling out from that some kind of, you know, quantifiable insight that then can be extrapolated to, you know, in the actual uh, returns process, reduce the return outcome. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's interesting, like, um, how many founders I talk to now who have, it's like everyone has some kind of AI thing. It's quite frightening. Like there's someone doing something with AI, like it's very rare to find someone who doesn't have that now in their portfolio. So when it comes to the use of AI, I know um, this is something that's not going to go away. It oftentimes creates a competitive advantage, which is what you guys have in your space. Um, What has been hard for you about AI? And what is your advice to yeah. a founder who's looking to get into the use of AI and the applications of AI in their own startup? Yeah, AI is, you know, uh, so there are two different kind of AIs, you know, people usually use. One is with the structured data, another is with unstructured data. So unstructured data is typically images, videos, you know, those kind of things. And the structured data is typically like a database where you have data coming in. So, you know, building an AI system on a structured data, I would say is uh, more, you know, you know, much more easier to implement compared to, you know, AI engine with unstructured data. For example, in our case, we have a tool by which we are able to do quality grading of the product once it comes back to the warehouse. So that tells you that it's a fresh product to be sold again or a second level product or a, or a discard level, which has to be thrown away, you know, because it's no longer saleable. So, the kind of effort we had to put in to build a system like that was, you know, hundred x higher as compared to the other systems we built within the within the you know within our platform. For example, the risk return risk assessment. So this kind of a just built on the structured data, it was relatively easier to build, much faster to build, much faster to test as compared to taking up a task of quality grading, which is very expensive, very difficult process altogether. So. My suggestion, I think it depends on the company stage, how early you are, like we are a seed funded company. So if you are an early stage or a bootstrap company, you know, unless the founder himself is extremely technical and he's very good in AI ML himself, I would say that, you know, you should build AI ML only when it's going to give you significant competitive advantage. Otherwise, you know, it could be a significant effort. It can take away all your resources and energy and might not be able to give you the kind of value you're looking for. 
But if you are a funded company, of course, right, you will continue to look for uh, different ways of, uh, you know, differentiating and uh, moving ahead of everybody else in the market. And I think that's where the AI becomes very critical. You have to have a dedicated team, but it should be really solving a real problem. And then there's a term for called AI for AI for good. Is your AI for good? You know, in our case, for example, we know our AI is for good, you know, good for everybody. It is not necessarily to replace, you know, a, a human worker. It's, it doesn't do any of that stuff. It is primarily to save you money and also save the environment, right? That's where we come in. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So don't you work with AI unless you have lots of money to spend. <laughs> or, or you are really, really good yourself, right? You don't have to yeah. really spend money on anybody else. As a founder, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> That's not going to be me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that guy. I'm like, yeah, you do it. I'm not that guy. I'm the visionary. This is what we're doing. Go do it. Um, so, yeah. uh, so a couple of things on AI. You mentioned the word prediction uh, just before. Um, how accurate now can is prediction if you're using AI? So in other words, the ability to predict, you know, whether something is going to be returned or not, or maybe even to forecast the, you know, next month or three months, uh, you know, what the uh, the total returns impact will be on an e-commerce store. How accurate is it now, actually? You know, structured or unstructured data, let's assume you got that down pat. How accurate is, product, is prediction in the space? Right. So we don't have a forecasting mechanism for the sales at this moment because that's not our focus. But from a, if you look at a returns possibility of a specific order, you know, when we, so we don't offer it to every of our customers, somebody who has at least a few hundred orders down the line, only then our system kicks in and starts giving the data because AI simply depends on how much data you have access to. If you have more data, it's much better to, you know, uh, to, to, to do a prediction. So we, we see currently we are sitting at about 85 to 90% kind of an accuracy range already, right? Even for the smaller store, somebody who does not have historical data, but since our model is not trained on all the stores we work with, you know, we are able to get insights from all the stores and that can apply to a specific store as well. So pretty high already. And, and we do see that this will actually eventually get to in the range of 95% plus kind of range. And the biggest impact of this is that once you're able to say why the return will happen, because we do that as well, right? That can really lead to a lot of things. You can do as a business a lot of things you can do to really safeguard the, and reduce the possibility of returns and improve your profitability. And, you know, so we are, we are slowly getting there, I would say. It's pretty high accuracy already. So where do you hope to be? I mean, if you're reducing returns, let's just say 30% now, 28%, round about there on average, let's say that, uh, you know, as you as your AI gets more sophisticated, um, you know, what do you feel are new, you know, previously not possible, you know, targets to reach in terms of the reduction of returns? What does that future actually look like for, for you and your customers? Yeah. So what we see today is that we have very clear visibility that we will get to something like a 45 to 50% kind of range as far as return reduction is concerned. But our goal is not that. Our goal is to get to about 70, 75%, right? And I won't have all the answers to it today, to be honest. You know, I think it's a journey. We will go over next, you know, few years 
and see how do we, you know, push the envelope, you know, from 45% to all the way to 70%, right? Um, but we will, I'm, I'm confident looking at what I'm seeing today and the way we are moving, I'm confident we will eventually get there. Well, that's uh, reducing the $500 billion <laughs> returns category by something like 400 and my maths in my head, 407, well, $375 million. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, theoretically, yes, but yes, absolutely, it's well, possible. Yeah. I, ho- I hope you get there. I think uh, it's interesting where you are, and I have one more question, a couple more questions, three more questions for you. One is, you're in a very interesting niche. Like, you could have gone into any kind of aspect of e-commerce, but you chose to get into reduction of returns, not even returns management. You're like a, a piece, a niche, a sub-niche of the niche returns management of e-commerce, the category. What is yep. that, um, what is, how, in what way has that driven your growth? In other words, what I've learned, you know, scaling companies is like, you got to choose, you know, and the, and the more niche you get, the more specialist you get, the more valuable you get. In other words, if you if there were two providers, let's just say, uh, you know, uh, someone doing returns management holistically, and then someone doing reduction of returns. If I knew that I need to reduce returns, like I'm always going to choose you over someone that's just generic. I do returns management, or I do e-commerce support, or whatever the case is. So, in what way has niching down actually driven the growth of Sora? A lot, I would say. Right. See, finally. Every product company actually has a story to it, right? And the story is something which should make sense to your customers, right? It's it's a, it's a it's a narrative in some sense, right? So many times when we went to our customers, right, they did not even realize that it was even possible to reduce returns. They always thought return management is the way, right? Just manage it. And then we told them, you know, if you have a disease, you don't just manage it; you try to cure it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that has worked very well for us, right? So I think it has helped us position ourselves very uniquely because we help, when we help, say, when we reduce returns, we are not only helping you, you financially, but we're also helping environmentally, right? A lot of these brands are also very, very brand conscious these days, if you really look at it, right? In fact, our website, for example, is net zero, right? So, and a lot of these brands like these things about us that we are not doing it just for the sake of you know, running a software solution company and generating some revenue out of it, it is actually going to be good for them and for the environment. And I think that that has helped us grow a lot. We have been growing very rapidly in last, you know, several months, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, niche that you're in, really is. So um, obviously what you're doing is really, really hard. Like if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It's hard, I get it, right? And I know you're nodding your head and I know you get that. But when you cast your mind back to like the first day, right, of the founding of Sorrow and you're like, yo, I'm going to do returns management. This is our thing. And we're going to fix the environment, et cetera, et cetera. When you cast your mind back to that first day, what is, and if I gave you a time machine and I said, listen, go back to, you know, Sachin on day one, right? What advice would you give yourself about building a business or this business in particular? That's a, <laughs> that's a very interesting one. Um, see, I would, I would, you know, simply think like that, right? You know, pick up low hanging fruits first, you know, and make progress with that. And why I'm saying this is because when we started Sara, when we started Eco Returns, 
we really started with the computer vision models for the quality inspection of the products, right? And that was a hard problem to solve. We literally ended up dealing with millions of pictures in a very, very short time using some really big GPU-based servers trying to train our models. And, you know, and I think we should have picked up something simpler, right? There are simpler things to do. We could have done that. Um, and that would have saved us time. Where we are today, we probably would have been at the same place about six months earlier than we are today, right? So uh, would have been even faster growth. I think that's the only thing I can think of. Of course, along the way, we made our own mistakes. We learned from those. And if I can go back, I'll try to avoid those mistakes. But when I try to avoid those mistakes, I'm sure I'll make new mistakes, which can which can continue anyway. So yeah. no regrets about that. But yeah, try to get some low-hanging fruits. I think if I would do it, you know, pick up something simpler, smaller to start with, which can create value quickly rather than trying to be, you know, all over the moon and very quickly, you know, no time altogether. I think that might be only advice I will give to myself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sachin, let's wrap this up. Uh, why do you do all of this? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? See, one of the things, you know, you know, once you become a serial entrepreneur, right, first time you're an entrepreneur for different reasons. You know, you want to build a company, grow rapidly, you know, create some wealth maybe, right? But this is my third company, right? And when you had reached at that stage, you were actually driven by purpose, right? At least I am driven by purpose in this case, you know, and the purpose is not to just make money. So that's, that's, a, that's a vibe, that's a secondary thing. For us, it's there is a fundamental problem in e-commerce businesses that needs solving, and we want to solve that. In fact, you know, many a times I dream about solving problems, you know, you know, how do we do this? Can we do that, right? So there are a bunch of ideas keep coming. And I think morning when I wake up, especially, I think it's the best time, you know, to think freely and come up with new ideas, new concept, what can work, what cannot work. And once as the day takes over, then you are, of course, busy. You know, you're busy with the product, busy with the customers. Uh, but yes, you know, this is something with our whole team actually is very motivated about, right? They they come up with new ideas themselves. Okay, Sachin, why don't we do this, right? Mm. Because everybody is clear. We are not a returns management company. We are a return reduction company. And that's what we aspire to do. And that's what we will continue to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting story, man. It really, really is cool. And I, I get I get what you're saying a lot about, uh, you know, being in a place of purpose, because I think there's nothing worse than like my previous company that I that I had was a lead generator for tech companies. So we worked with like Microsoft, and Oracle, these guys, and we did very well. But man, like zero purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like it had zero ROI in the passion bucket <laughs> you know what i mean like it was cool in the beginning to to scale the thing and then it's like hang on what am what difference am i actually making here to the world you know am i just putting a zero on on like microsoft's bottom line you know what i mean like they make a billion dollars a week sorry yeah a week <laughs> profits so <laughs> you know like what difference am i really making um and i think it's an interesting uh, maybe point to, to finish on because my sense is, is like there's this, I think, you know, 10 years ago when people were starting to get into, like entrepreneurship wasn't a thing like 25 years ago. Now it's a thing. Like everybody wants to be either like a content creator, entrepreneur, like that's the thing. 
Um, and uh, I think, especially when you're young, it is about the money. But as you get older and you like, I know you've got kids, I've got kids, you start to realize that actually you can make a difference and make money at the same time. And I'm seeing more and more and more of that in, in startup founders, which is very, very exciting because if you're not making a difference, like, you know, you should question why not. Or if you're not making the difference that you can make now, what changes can you make in your business so that you can start to actually contribute, you know, to the greatest degree possible, uh, you know, as a founder entrepreneur? Because everything, by the way, that is today was changed by someone, an entrepreneur usually, from the way that it was. You know, so it's visionaries such as yourself, you know, that are going to change the world. And so if that's what you're about, if that's your DNA, you should be contributing like social on you don't make money first and then make a difference later you can do both at the same time and that for me is a huge uh, point to to finish on absolutely man and what you're doing is also very purpose driven right you're helping entrepreneurs right you're an entrepreneur yourself so i'd like to thank you for that you know what you're doing that's very purpose driven and uh, you know wish you all the best in what you are doing as well Likewise, dude. Listen, thank you for being on the show. I hope to get you back uh, when you've like hit those new uh, ARR numbers. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Sachin, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you all again soon. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, man. Thank you. Have a good day. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.